If you would, open your Bibles to the book of John, John chapter 13. We'll be in John chapter 13, verse 31 through 35 this morning. You'll find it on page 900 of the blue pew Bibles in front of you. I've been thinking about life with God for most of my life. And I assure you that is not a pious statement made to make me look godly. It's not to say that I've known what it meant to have life with God most of my life. I grew up going to a church like this one, being steeped in social settings and circles where Christianity was talked about regularly. I heard over and over the need for a person to have a relationship with God. And I could never get the meaning of that phrase to click in my own understanding. I found that when I heard someone refer to a relationship to Jesus, they, not out of any sense of malice to me, but they just rarely defined what that meant. And when I heard it, I'd wonder, yeah, but what does that mean? In a way, I've chosen to... In the times that I'll get to preach to you in coming weeks and months, I've chosen to begin this morning in what I hope will be a series through this section of John in a way to answer that question. What does it mean to have a life with God? How do we define what that life is? What does it practically mean? How do we go about living in that relationship with God? I wonder if you need the same clarity that I so often feel I need. I wonder how many people are in this room that have a diminished or deficient view. You think life with God is something very narrow, but in reality is something much more expansive. Maybe you have a dangerous view. You think life with God is one thing, but in reality, God is offering something completely different. Or you, like me, have long understood there is more available. You just don't know what the more is. You may not have the same experience as me. There are, I'm sure, people in this room that could confidently describe to you from knowledge of God's word and their own experience what a relationship with God looks like. I'm thankful for that. I hope this series deeply encourages you in that life with God and that you will see many opportunities to help others through this, to live with God as you are right now. I don't know when this series is going to end. Lord willing, I intend to preach through John 13, 31 through to the end of chapter 17. And I'm really excited about this. Personally, I've never studied any part of this section of John and left wanting less. I've never walked away feeling that I've learned all there is to know here. The opposite. I was telling Andrew this morning that even endeavoring to preach on this first part, it feels like I jumped into the deep end without my floaties on. This section of scripture creates a craving in my heart to know more about the reality of what Jesus is talking about. So selfishly, I chose to preach this as much for me as for you. 
I want us to plunge ourselves into the wonder and mystery of Jesus and have our hearts filled and not worry if you find yourself like me, feeling like you've dived in deeper than you've ever been into the mystery of life with God. It is okay to drown here. It is okay to be overwhelmed by the reality of what God has opened up for us in Jesus. If the Lord chooses to be gracious to us in this series and sends his spirit to help us understand him, there is incredible potential for our life with God together. I'm excited and eager to see what he might have in store for us. Now, in opening up a new series, it would be typical, I think, for us to start at the beginning of a book and work through it consecutively. That's often our practice. The Gospel of John is an entire book, and if we studied it as a whole, we would have a better vantage point of what Jesus is communicating through John what John wants to communicate to us about Jesus. Maybe one day we'll do that together. But for now, we're going to drop into the middle. You can read through the parts we've skipped this week, chapter 1 through chapter 13, verse 34, if you like. You could even read after this into the parts that follow. I'm sure that would benefit you. But John's goal in the whole book is that anyone who reads his account will believe... That Jesus is the Son of God, sent from God, and by believing, you and I would have life in Jesus' name. And Jesus, naturally, if that's the point, fills the pages of John's gospel. Before John chapter 13, John tells us the many miraculous signs Jesus did throughout his life, along with Jesus' teaching that he was sent from God. In John chapter 13... Verse 1 through 34, Jesus eats his last supper with his disciples. In that time, he washes the disciples' feet, then releases Judas, one of the 12 disciples, to go directly from there to betray Jesus, selling information about Jesus' location to Jesus' enemies for 30 coins. Then in John 13, 31 to 35, which is our passage this morning, Jesus tells his disciples that there is about to be a considerable shift in his ministry. Something is about to happen that will both affect Jesus and his disciples. So we can view this paragraph I'm about to read and the section that follows through 17 as Jesus' last words and these the beginning of his last words. And so as I read this, Feel the heavy significance in light of that in what Jesus says. John chapter 13, verse 31 to 35. When he had gone out, that is Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This passage breaks into three parts, and each part builds upon the one that comes before it. 
So my, my sermon outline this morning is going to follow those three parts of this section. First, we will see the purpose of Jesus' life. Verse 31 and 32. The purpose of Jesus' life. Second, in verse 33, the people Jesus left. The people Jesus left. And then finally, thirdly, the purpose for our life with Jesus. Verse 34 and 35. The purpose of Jesus' life, the people Jesus left, and the purpose for our life with Jesus. So let's start there at the beginning. The purpose of Jesus' life in verse 31 and 32, which I just read. Just before this, Jesus has told Judas to go and set in motion the events that will lead to Jesus being wrongly executed. In the next section after this, Jesus tells another one of his disciples, Peter, that he will deny Jesus soon. And yet here, right in the middle of those two relational gut punches, Jesus is talking positively about his relationship to his father. I find that both remarkable and a perfect illustration of how Jesus' purpose in coming to this world was something greater than anyone could see. If his purpose was merely to make a difference in one place, in one time, in 12 men's lives, well, that seems to be falling apart. But in Jesus' perspective, everything is serving the purpose for which he came. As he says, to glorify the Father and the Father to be glorified in him. There was more to his life. Christian, you never know what seemingly devastating relational gut punches can result in God being glorified in you. Learn from Jesus that in devastation, even there, God is working. And if you're wondering if there is more, Jesus knows the answer to that question. He's the one to go to to get answers for your life. To get answers for how you can have life with him. Now I recognize verse 31 and 32 are a mouthful. And when we read the verses we see, I think clearly, that Jesus does want his disciples to know that whatever all this glorifying means, it has happened and it is about to happen. Verse 31 Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. It has happened at this point. Verse 32. If God is glorified in him, which Jesus just said he is, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once or soon or immediately. It is about to happen. So the timing of all this seems clear enough. Now to the harder things to understand. What is Jesus talking about? Well, from other places in the Gospels, we do know Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man, a way that he indicated he was the Messiah that the Old Testament predicted. So when he refers to the Son of Man here, he's talking about himself. But what about this word glorify that he uses five times in two sentences? I would argue that getting this answered will not only help us understand Jesus' purpose— But lay the foundation for what we understand is our purpose. 
In other words, it is well worth the searching, the praying, the attentiveness to Scripture we will have to do in order to find understanding into what Jesus means here. The way Jesus talks sounds like he views this glorifying the Father and the Father glorified in him as some grand climax to why he came to earth and what he's been doing. He is about to be done. He's about to leave the earth. And what he will have finished is this glorifying in order to be glorified. Now in these verses, Jesus doesn't come out and define what he means by glorified, but he will. He will in chapters 14 through 17. So, we're going to do a brief excursus into that section, the whole section. And for that purpose, I've given you a handout in your bulletin. I, we are not going to spend as much time as I would love to in this. So I just want you to have this so that if it's helpful to you to come back to, if there are things that you wanted to think about more and you just couldn't take notes down, I, I hope all this is helpful to you, recognizing that this is dense, time is limited, and maybe the Lord will use this in our life as we take it away from here. But we're trying to understand what Jesus means, especially as he talks about this glorifying. And I'd like to ask and answer five questions to understand that more clearly and understand what, it, what Jesus is communicating about his purpose in his life. So first question, what is Jesus' understanding of glory? Which is what we think about when someone says glorify. Well, look at John chapter 17. Read verse 22 to 24. Jesus here is praying to God the Father and says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Glory is the state of living in the presence of God, experiencing the love of God the Father for the Son. Glory is enjoying a perfectly loving and unified relationship with God. God's glory is that He is life. Our glory is that God is our life. I think that's what Jesus understands glory to mean as he talks about it. So that leads to the second question about Jesus' words. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, this, I'm not relying as much on something inside John, but just to think about all the ways it's talked about throughout the Bible. To glorify God is to act in any way that brings honor attention, and praise to God for the fact that he is life. As we read about in Deuteronomy 6, love is the primary action by which anyone glorifies God. And while the experience we might have of that love of God for ourselves has many features, the most visible proof of love for God is obedience. 
Obedient love to God glorifies God. Which leads to our next question. How does Jesus glorify the Father? Look at John chapter 17, verse 1 through 4. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus glorifies the Father by obediently loving the Father, and by doing that, brings the Father's love to the people that the Father and Son have set out to love. Jesus makes the Father's love known to us and provides a way for us to live in God's love with God. To blow our minds in a short phrase, Jesus opens up a space for us in the Trinitarian family. Jesus glorifies the Father by bringing the Father's chosen people into glory. What is that glory? It is an eternal life lived physically and spiritually present in the middle of the love of the Trinitarian God. That's amazing. Now, perhaps you notice when I read it in chapter 17, verse 1 and 2, that Jesus says he gives eternal life and then defines eternal life as knowing the Father and the Son, which leads to question number four. What does it mean to know the Father and the Son? Well, that answer is multifaceted. We see in Jesus' words there in the beginning of John chapter 17 to know God is a gift from the Father and the Son. It's not something that we can provide on our own. Obviously, you must give it. He gives it through the Spirit, through understanding, through repentance and faith, as we talked about, through the regenerating work of His Spirit in us. And that gift is accessed through our believing the true message from the Father that Jesus is, in fact, His Son. Chapter 17, verse 8. To know God is also a reality we live in. Chapter 17, verse 22. Knowing God is being one with the Father and Son. Chapter 17, verse 23 and 24. Knowing God is being loved by the Father in the same way the Father loves Jesus, the Son. Chapter 17, verse 26. Knowing God is having Christ in us. So then Jesus says he came to glorify the Father, but he also says the Father is, will be glorified in the Son. How is the Father glorified in the Son? Question number five. I think this is what Jesus is asking the Father to do in chapter 17, verse 24 to 26. Where he prays, continues to pray, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you who you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
I understand there's more time to be spent here, but let me summarize what I think Jesus is telling us, his disciples and us, about what it means that the Father is glorified in the Son. God, who is eternal life, is glorified in the Son when God, who is eternal life, becomes our eternal life through Jesus. God, who is eternal love, through Jesus' love for the Father and us, becomes our eternal love. God, who is in a perfectly unified and loving relationship within the Trinity, who lives in glory, becomes our glory through Jesus. So one part of Jesus' purpose in life was to glorify his Father by obediently loving his Father so that all who believe in him might know God. That's what it looked like for him to glorify the Father. This work, Jesus says as he leaves, is finished. He made the Father known. But there's another part of it that's going to continue happening. Every time a person is brought into the loving relationship of the Father through Jesus, another part of Jesus' purpose is fulfilled. The Father is glorified in the Son. Take it home, chew on it. Pray and talk about it. There's more here for us to discover, but we must move on. Does Christ's purpose have anything to do with us? Point number two, the people Jesus left. Look at verse 33 of chapter 13. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A couple passing observations. Notice that Jesus knew his future. He knew he was going to die, resurrect, and ascend back to heaven, which is what he's talking about here. Notice that Jesus also believed himself to be the one sent from God in heaven and returning to God in heaven. But what is most in view in this verse is the way that Jesus addresses and characterizes the disciples that he is leaving behind. This is the only record we have of Jesus directly calling his disciples little children. But it will be so significant in John's mind that he will address the audience of his letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He will address his audience in those letters this way, little children, seven times. By calling them little children, Jesus is signaling that their status with his father has now changed. They are now part of the family of God. This is because of what Jesus did, is about to do. Jesus made the Father known to them, and they have believed in Jesus. In coming verses, Jesus will tell them how he will send his spirit as their helper. But even now, their attitude towards Jesus is markedly different from others. They are not like the other Jews Jesus references here, who he told the same thing to in chapter 7 and 8, and who walked away from Jesus indignant or unbelieving. They have responded differently. They have heard. They have seen. They have believed, even if they don't always understand. Jesus is, as we know and you can read about as you go through the next pages of John, he's about to die on the cross in the place of these. In the place of anybody who would believe in him, that he is the son sent from the father. He will cover your sin with his sacrifice Through the death he died, he will give you life through his resurrection. 
Jesus called these disciples. And he will die and he will rise in order to unite them to himself as one. And because the Father loves the Son, he loves all who are united to his Son. You are not loved by God because of your performance. You are not loved by God because of your heritage or your name. You are not loved by God because of your faith. You are loved by God because the Father loves the Son. And the Son, through his death and resurrection for you, has united you to himself and to the Father, Son, and Spirit. You are loved because the Father loves Jesus. And through Jesus, the Father loves you if you believe in Jesus whom the Father sent. Notice how the disciples love Jesus. Jesus knows that they're going to want to be with him when they leave. They've given three years of their lives to go where he goes. And when Jesus leaves, they're going to want to go where he goes, which we'll think about more in our next sermon in this series. If you believe that, that Jesus is sent from God and died in your place and rose for your life, you're God's child. The Father welcomes you into his family through the Son. How do you know that you believe in Jesus? You love him. You want to be with him. You are eager to go to heaven where he is. Even though you cannot be physically with him yet, you seek him where he can be found in God's word, in prayer, in his spirit. You look for evidence of his life in you and in others' lives, the way that you see Jesus in them, and you love others as he loves you. If that's not you, I would love to tell you more about Jesus so that you might believe in him. And so that you might know the Father's love for you so that you might love him in return. If that does describe you, see that Jesus wants you here in this world. He left us here on purpose. The Son of God came and he left. And he left sons and daughters of God here. Why would he do that? Why not just take the disciples with him? Well, that leads us to our third point. Point number three. The purpose for our life with Jesus. Read again with me verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Now, if we just took those verses and just kind of pulled them out and looked them on their own, if I had just preached a sermon on that and not looked at what happened before this in John and what's going to happen after, we might understand these verses to be merely about our action toward other church members or Christians or about how genuine love between Christians makes people curious about God. Well, all those things are certainly part of this, but in light of what comes before this, these two verses, I think, are about much, something much more than that. My, my understanding of the sequence of Jesus' words in verse 31 to 35 is that he came to do something, did it, having done it, he left, 
leaving other family members to carry on in the relationship that he has with God and now has with us and we now have with the Father. Out of this new reality that Jesus has made, that is us as part of the Trinitarian fellowship, as part of the relationship with God, out of that new reality that Jesus has come to make in us, he gives us a new commandment to the new family. He tells us, use the love I've given to love the others who are part of this new Trinitarian relationship that you have with me and the Father. Use what I have given you and put in you for the service and good of others for whom I've done the same. And so much is achieved through our obedient love. We enjoy the father-son love between us. And the world knows that we are sent from Jesus. Just like when Jesus was here, the world knew that he was sent from God. Now that he has left us here and we love with his love, the world knows that we are sent from Jesus who was sent from God. And the world believes in Jesus. In short, the glory of God finds its expression in the visible church that loves with Jesus' love. Jesus says he glorified God and God was glorified in him. And then he left. And as he left, he says to us, now it is your turn. And perhaps we've been thinking about our role as Christians individually, that our lives are meant to be used in such a way that brings praise to God. I think that's true. Or maybe we've been primarily thinking about our role as Christians corporately, that we should love each other because Jesus loved us. It's certainly true. I just want us to pull out a little bit from that perspective and see something much bigger here that Jesus is explaining. Have we realized that our lives have this kind of significance? That where Jesus left off on his ministry on earth, he intended us to pick up. (laughs) That we are now meant to be toward each other as Jesus himself was towards his disciples. In our relationships with other Christians and most naturally with Christians in our church, we help each other know God. And from us, others get to experience the love the Father has for each and all of his children. That is the glory and significance of your life, Christian. But have we realized that our lives have this significance? I think Jesus wants us to. I think he wants us to see see all that he has made available to us in all that he did for us. Jesus' prevailing concern throughout this entire gospel is for people to know that the Father sent him. And now that he finishes that task, Jesus returning to the Father. But the question lingers, how will people know the Father if the Son is leaving Answer, through the love of those he left behind. Through you and through me. Jesus says that this love is birthed out of a new commandment. New because there had been an old commandment. The one that we read about earlier in Deuteronomy 6. the, The commandment to love the Lord with all that we have. And to love our neighbor. So it is not the love being commanded that is new. 
The love is unchanging as the God whose loving character birthed the command. It's new because the people are new. The context is new. People now standing inside the Trinitarian love relationship, able to both receive and reciprocate that love to God and each other by virtue of the fact that we are one with God. It is a commandment in the sense that it is functioning to direct us in the fulfilling of our function as God glorifiers. The command does not land on stubborn and stony hearts who love themselves more than God, but on new hearts. In the same way the Father told the Son to come and love, to show the Father to people. So now Jesus' followers desire to fulfill that same role. To come and love and show the Father and the Son's love to other people. If you were with God right now in heaven. Living in the wonder of what we're describing. What Jesus is describing for us. In perfect love and unity with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Enjoying the fellowship of total relationship with three perfect persons of the Godhead. Father, Son, Spirit. And I came into that and sinned against you. How much would that bother you? Well, you might say, but Philip, there's no possibility for that. We're in heaven. There's no sin in heaven. Well, fair enough. But if it were possible, my guess is that your response would be all love. Because you are existing in the middle of God who is love. If my action was wrong, you would love. If my action hurt, you would love. If my action was unjust, you would love. How do I know that? Because that's what Jesus does when we sin against him. When Jesus tells us to love one another just as he loved us, there's more here than a passing of the baton, more than just follow my example. I think Jesus is going further to say, with the love I loved you with, the love that I placed in you, the love that dwells in you by my presence in you, with that love, go and act toward my other family members. This love is a unique kind of love. So distinct that those who see it lived out between us will identify it and us as being the people who definitely follow Jesus. It's the same unique love that Jesus showed when he humbly served his disciples and washed their feet. A serving love. It's the same unique love that would lead him to lay down his life for his friends on the cross. A sacrificial love. It's a unique love because it emanates from one source, from God himself. No one but those who have come to know the Father can show this type of love. It's a love that is not self-seeking. Remember, Jesus will obediently love the Father and the disciples in the events about to unfold. He will love Peter who betrays him. He will love people who cause his death. He will pour himself out in order to fill countless people with love from God. Jesus had the love of the Father before he ever came to die. He didn't need to add to that experience for himself. The main beneficiary of Jesus' obedient love were people other than himself. 
And now through him, we have the love of the Father. And now Jesus' life becomes our life. And now the main beneficiary of our obedient love for God are people other than ourselves. If you are Jesus' disciple, you are the conduit of God's love to the world. How could a person possibly do this? Well, it's only when you know the Father through the Son. Without that, every act of selflessness, service, or sacrifice will feel like a cost to you. But when we live in the glory of the unified, loving relationship of the Trinity, every act of love to another is seen as an opportunity to give what Jesus gives us in abundance, love. There is no loss in loving one another. There's only gain. So to love one another is Christ's purpose for us. By that love, we glorify the Father and Son, and through our love, the Father and Son are glorified in us. Tradition says that the writer, John, lived in Ephesus until he was extremely old. His disciples could barely carry him to church, and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but, little children love one another. The disciples and brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, Teacher, why do you always say this? And he would reply, Because it is the Lord's commandment. And if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. John knew what Jesus knew. That his love that he leaves us, that he leaves in us, is sufficient for so many things. As we'll likely find throughout our series in this section, we may often walk away wondering how to make sense of Jesus' profound end-of-life words. That's appropriate, and if we embrace what we do not yet know, then we have cause to ask the Spirit to lead us into all truth. Perhaps you're wondering how to make sense of all this in light of what you perceive, especially what you perceive to be true among Christ's followers. Many people are perplexed about the church these days. I don't think that's new. I think people have always been perplexed. But many people are perplexed, both those who are inside looking at the church and those outside looking at the church. Perhaps you are too. We can wonder, why isn't it more like Jesus? Why not more love for the lost? Why does Jesus' description of relationships of love between Christians here seem different from what I see, let alone what the world sees in us? Now, to whatever degree that is true, and I do think it is somewhat true, and I do think it is not all true, I wonder if our deficiencies as Christians and as a church in this world stem from a shrunken view of the gospel and what the gospel achieves. Redemption is certainly accomplished at the cross. But God has always been telling us a much bigger story about what life would be like with him. And he's been telling it since the beginning. 
In the Garden of Eden, God made us for physical presence with him in perfect, unified love and obedience. He created a covenant of love. God the creator with a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. That was a conditional arrangement. It was dependent upon the man and the woman's obedient love. And this they failed in. And we have too. That creation covenant was forever broken. But that initial arrangement was not God's eternal plan. It was the first step in a much grander plan. A much grander relationship that would be made available to people God had created. You see, had Adam and Eve stayed there in their obedient love, they would, I do not think, have ever enjoyed or participated in as much glory as you do and will, Christian. Jesus came to accomplish redemption, to rescue us from sin and the curse, to separate us eternally from God, to bring us into his family, to forgive our sins, which was required, to take our wrath, which we stood under at the cross, to be raised victorious. But he did all that to functionally provide a bridge on which we could come over into an eternal covenant with God that is not dependent on our obedience. That covenant of love was not made for us. That covenant of love has been eternally existing inside the Trinity forever. It is something we are invited into for the rest of eternity. Because Christ was made like us, was obedient, was, who died for us, rose to release us from sin and to God. Jesus, through doing all that, takes us and makes us one with himself and ushers us into the eternal Trinitarian fellowship. I wonder if failing to see the glory of our position as the beloved children of God is not half the cause of problems in our churches. People have a diminished view of Christ's work as merely forgiveness or people who merely see resurrection as the, the, the way by which we don't have to die. What, if anything, does that truth do to unfurl for us the sweeping scope of God's redemption plan to bring us into love with him eternally? Spending too much time with our heads lowered in guilt, too much focus on critiquing our brother or sister, too fixated on how others have loved us instead of how much the Father has loved us, too little coming to the Father as little children, enjoying his love and inviting others to come in and find what Jesus opened for us. There is an eternal world of unbelievable experiences of unity, beauty, security, trust, purpose open to us now. I suggest we lean into that to deepen our anticipation of life with God that is coming soon. Of course, we must dwell on the cross. Of course, we must rejoice in resurrection. Without it, none of it's possible. Without these, there is no life with God. But these actions Christ took had a purpose. Christ did those things for us to know glory. And what is that glory? Glory is enjoying a perfectly loving and unified relationship with God. God's glory is that he is life. 
our glory is that God is our life. I do see and believe we are already experiencing that glory here as Jesus' disciples in this place. I see so many evidence of sacrifice and service, of love and care beyond ourselves. I see so many ways that God in this church is, is promoting us to think less of our own interest and prefer the interests of one another. Praise God. That's evidence that the Father exists with us and that we live with him. Now let's go deeper and broader. Further up, further in to love one another. I don't know what your life with God is like today. But whatever it is, non-existent, stagnant, thriving, I pray God overwhelms us all with the opened reality lived in his glory through Jesus. By leaving the church with this new commandment, Jesus declares that he intends to disseminate his love through his people and demonstrate that he was sent from God through those he now sends. Isn't it wonderful that God would use you like that? Is that how he is using you? Isn't it wonderful that people will be able to see Jesus in your love? Is that what people see? How amazing that God has a purpose for us in this church. That Kansas City would see the unique, eternal, sacrificial, and serving love of Jesus in Warnell Road Baptist Church. Is that what Kansas City sees? Is the love of the Father and Son that we have been given... Would anyone who knows or knows that we think of that love, would, would anybody see that we think of the love that we have from our Father is our glory? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending the Son so that we might know you and believe you. We praise you for every evidence, every heart that, that has faith in you today. And we pray that you would change more hearts that don't. That you would insert your love into people's lives who don't yet know it. And begin them on this life of eternity of knowing you more. Father, forgive us for the ways we have failed in keeping your command. And yet, Lord, also lift our heads. Lift our heads to see that this is what you've been about forever. That to bring us into love with you is what you have always purposed in Christ. And to give us grand significance in that grand purpose for our life now. And a wonderful future in front of us of life with you. Thank you for that. Lord, cause our weary and discouraged and broken and, and doubting hearts to be lifted out of those things. By seeing your purpose for us in Christ. 
Lord, please rescue us from diminished and deficient views of what you've done for us so that we might glory in you all the more and glorify you. Lord, you've placed us here to be those who show the love of Jesus to one another, that the world might see that that is a unique love and only comes from you. And so, Father, we pray, knowing all our sins and us knowing them forgiven at the cross, we pray from here, use us and utilize us, that we might love one another so that you, Father, may be glorified. And Jesus, you might be glorified in the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.